HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Dylan Hoyer reporting from Torino, Italy, where I'm a delegate at the Terra Madre Salon del Gusto, the largest international event dedicated to good, clean, and fair food hosted by Slow Food. More than 3,000 people, including farmers, cooks, and activists from 150 countries, have gathered to discuss the politics of food. Today, I'm joined by Carlo Nessler. Born and raised in Bolzano, Italy, he has been interested in cooking and fermenting foods since he was a boy. But what started as a hobby became an expertise. Carlo hosts workshops on fermented foods in Italy and abroad, collaborates with chefs, restaurants, and food producers to create fermented food products, and he translated Wild Fermentation by Sander Katz in Italian. Welcome, Carlo. Thank you. So did you grow up fermenting foods at home? And what was your earliest memories of that? Oh, well, my first memory was about yogurt. I wondered how it's possible that milk becomes solid or somehow solid. So I asked my mom, my dad, but no one knew anything about that. So I started researching. And I was very, very small. It was like five years old, six years old, so <laughs> I started with a yogurt machine, it's classical, we know everyone now, but in the 70s it was not very common. And so my interest for fermentation started, because all this uh, like magical transformation of food did fascinate me. And uh, after that I started making uh, some sauerkraut, some bread with sourdough, and slowly, slowly growing, I started doing it with beer and uh, distillation and wine. And it was not a matter of drinking because I wanted to drink. I didn't like wine, for example, but the transformation was the point, point of interest for me. And so everything started as a hobby. And how did you go about learning? Were you learning in classes? Were you, what books were you reading? What were some of the resources you used to start doing all of this? Mostly library and uh, talking with people. Because it was not even, uh, I was not conscious that I was interested in fermentation. So I started reading a book about how you make a beer, a professional book. It was very difficult. I was 18, I didn't understand much, but later, Remembering what I had read, it was like, ah, this was that, about chemistry, about biology, 
and talking with old people, elder people mostly, when I was traveling in small villages or something like that, many times it happened that they were talking about strange antique food like olives or sausages or cheese. And every time I was wondering about this time, this passes, and the stuff change. And so it was like learning without knowing to learn. And at a certain moment, I noticed that there was processes that I could manage just because I had heard and read about. And I imagine it's a lot of learning by doing also, from my own experience making some sourdough at home. You can read, but then you really understand once you test it, once you see what actually happens. Yes, of course. And, and this is the most important part. At this time where there was no classes about fermentation, so I started making sauerkraut. I made a lot of mistakes for years, and it took me years to understand some parts that now I can give to some other in two sentences, but I didn't have uh, information about it, so I had to try, try, try. This is not the best option, but I, I had no other. <laughs> Can you talk about some traditional Italian fermented foods or fermentation techniques? Yes, of course, because often people think that uh, fermentation is something from the far uh, east. But it's not true. Fermentation is everywhere. In Italy, for example, we have very known fermented products like wine, like cheese, like bread, like sausages and salami and uh, vinegar and beer. And we have also fermented uh, vegetables. One of the traditional in North is the sauerkraut. We all, at the time had the sauerkraut. And in the more center or south, we have more, more olives. Olives in uh, salty water, how you say? Um, brine, that is very common. And, uh, and also, for example, uh, something we call giardiniera, which means that a mix of different vegetables in brine. So this was the traditional way. Nowadays, many people does a giardiniera that is not fermented and it's pasteurized and it's not the same. And uh, yeah, I mean, Italians don't know they eat so much fermented food, but indeed they do. What do you wish people knew more about fermented foods in their normal life? Uh, look, in as. For 10, year, uh, 10 years ago, people didn't ever, did not know that wine is fermented. I asked people, what is fermented? That they didn't know anything. Now there is a more consciousness because there is an interest about microbiome. And uh, people know now that fermentation is good for the health. So they, uh, their interest rose. And the interest of cooks. So fancy restaurants do something with fermentation and so people become curious and started going to see, to read, there are articles and people talking about that. So now more and more people knows about fermentation. The only pity is that most people think that their fermentation is one, so like uh, sauerkraut. And they associate sauerkraut with fermentation, don't think about alcoholic fermentation or other kinds of fermentation that are very, very interesting. And the most part of the traditional fermented foods was fermenting in different kinds. So a mixed fermentation, not just one. Well, thank you. 
And so give me an overview of your company, Nestler, which was founded in 2016. How has it grown over the past few years? You do a lot of different things. <laughs> yes, it's interesting because I started uh, in a strange way. I had no money, but I wanted to ground to found a company. And so I started with nothing. Started making about 20 glasses of sauerkraut. And then when they were sold, I started another batch. So very small, but day by day I, grow, I grew. And uh, in these la last years, we concentrate more in products like miso and shoyu, so based on koji fermentation. And it was very good because uh, I, hold, I do classes for people. And so doing classes, becoming more um, famous and traveling around in Italy, I had the opportunity to make my products known. And so the, the company grew and now, for example, we are selling in whole Europe, uh, not big quantities, but for people that are very interested in good food and fermented food. And now we even sell uh, products to Japan. So it is for me a wow experience because I never thought that I would sell miso or shoyu in Japan. Wow. But it's a miso that's a bit different because we use different um, products. We don't use soya, we use other beans, we use wheat. And the taste is more Mediterranean. And in Japan, they appreciate that because it's a different kind of making something that is traditional. It's their culture, but it become also our culture. And from what I've read on your website, even though you're making food on a larger scale, the scope of your work, it's not just doing the same thing over and over again. Experimentation is still a big part of what you do at Nestler. What kind of experimentation are you doing? Yes, uh, look, uh, we experiment all the time because we want to enjoy our job. And we don't make uh, mass production. Our batches are about 25 kilo, 100 kilo, so very small. But uh, every time we question what we do. So we start using different uh, products, different legumes. We started making a shio koji with hazelnuts, which was a, a thing that I don't know if anyone, anyone has tried, but we had to try to try to find the recipe. And once we found finally the recipe, we tried again, and then it comes to the market. And then we have a new curiosity. For example, now we started thinking, how is a shoyu made without a legume? And we started to make um, a shoyu only with a, how you call it? The einkorn is called in German. It's an ancient uh, kind of uh, wheat. Okay. And so it's only water, wheat, and fermentation. It's all, pardon. And then we started thinking, uh, a friend of mine said, wow, ah, interesting, and why don't you do that without the cereal? only the legume, which I know there ex it exists, but we didn't do it. So we started with black lentils and the chickpeas and with fava beans, seeing how it comes, because it's not soya. And, uh, and now, for example, with the scrap of the production of Ashoyu, we started making a power, which is a powder, which is very, very um, flowerful. And we started making a rub for the barbecue with that, with aromas, with herbs from the Mediterranean. So we change something that is an ancient culture with our taste, trying and cooking and using it and not just uh, trying to find the best recipe. And how long can this take? Months, years? How long is the, you know, 
sometimes it's quite long because <laughs> we start with, for example, a production of a shoyu, it takes one year. Yeah. So after one year, you see if it's nothing or if it's something that could be good. Then you have to try another time. Yeah. So for a shoyu, for example, it can take three, four years because I always try the last time, the last recipe and see if it works. And then I leave it there for understanding the shelf life of the product. And you've also gotten involved in agriculture as well. How much of your own food are you sourcing? And why is it important to you to be a part of your product's entire lifespan? Yes, because um, we have like 50-50 what we produce and what others produce. Because we, are, uh, we, are, we have a small farm, so we need more that we are farming. And um, it is important to me to know the people who farms. So I don't want to just buy chickpeas. I have to know the guy who produced the chickpeas and the soil where he produced it. And this is not easy if you go far away. So I have always to know the people. And this is my personal rule for having the best quality I can achieve. And you told me that you're working on getting certified to be organic. What are some of the practices that you've prioritized when you're farming? Uh, we use practically no chemical and nearly nothing uh, that we put on. We just use a bit of compost and we have low uh, production, but it's okay to us because we produce something that is not eaten in big quantities. It's just, uh, how do you say, flavor and enhancer. So mm -hmm. you use not that much. It's more our trouble than uh, our labor, than the product of the soil. So on your company's website, there's a quote and I'm gonna read it. It says, in an era in which for many, the only way to face difficulties seems to be extermination and desertification, for which sterilization to kill microbes, spontaneous plants are systemically eliminated through weeding and poisons are spread indiscriminately, disinfestations in the agricultural and civil fields. It is vital to recover and update the, the ancient tradition of fermenting food. So first of all, who is this quote by? That's on uh, your website. It's me. It's you, okay, that's your own quote. So break that down for us. There's a lot of ideas in there. What does that mean to you? Uh, you know, it's like, Sander uses a, Sander Katz uses a, a sentence, an expression that it's the war against microbes that started with the, the era of Pasteur, Koch. They, they, they discovered you know, somehow the importance of microbes in a negative way. But now we discover the importance of biodiversity and of biodiversity of microbes in a positive way. And this means that the, the attitude that we started at the end of the 19th century to destroy, to control, should pass away. Because we have now the information, the knowledge to understand that you cannot uh, control by destruction. The war is never a good way to make peace. And this is something that we should know. And not only in the war um, between people or nations, also in the war, in the relation with other uh, living beings. So in this sense, if we understand how to live together 
with people, live together with plants, live together with other living beings like microbes, in this sense, everything becomes better. And every, everything comes to uh, an equilibrium, um, something, a balance, where we can live together, not having everything. And this is a point that in our, in our actually culture from now, it's not understood to me. It's like uh, if you speak with the nations, not with the single people, uh, the person understands, but the, uh, the nations don't act like I have to preserve my environment, not because uh, it's, it's nice and fancy, not because there is oxygen produced but by the plants, but for a more, more important reason that I am a part of this ecosystem. I am the ecosystem in a part and not I'm something else. Many people does not understand what my ecosystem is. If you live in New York, you don't know where your food comes from often. And so I say it's important to recover this contact with the food, with the soil, with the plants, with the animals. You eat an animal, would you kill it? I don't eat animals. <laughs> no, not you in general. I say, I accept yeah. if you are in contact yeah. with the animal, you are, uh, you have the courage to kill the animal yeah. and eat his meat. So you would respect it much more than going to the supermarket yeah. and buying something in the plastic. And I agree with that too. That's why I try to ask myself that question about whether I'm comfortable eating meat. I try and think about, yeah, what, if I could do it myself. <laughs> um, and, at your, you gave a talk this morning at Terra Madre called The World of Fermentation. And someone asked a really interesting question about the diverse, the biodiversity of microbes themselves and about how a lot of bread makers, cheese makers, who have you, are using domesticated yeast. And if that's a threat to biodiversity. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that because I hadn't thought very much about that before. Yes, that's a very important topic, very interesting to me, because uh, mm, we don't think much about the biodiversity and the loss of biodiversity in terms of microbes. But it is very, very important because uh, all the living is based on microbes, of the living of microbes and on his their biodiversity. Uh, it, it's a bit like... Um, putting it in a too easy way to think that I can domesticate just one or two microbes because I know they do the most important function. Because it's too simple, it's not that simple. For example, in a usual normal uh, sauerkraut, there are hundreds of different types of microbes. I cannot imagine that I can make a such good and healthy sauerkraut just with one domesticated, which some people do. So it's like, there is something wrong in that. But usually I thought, uh, when I was a child, I thought, okay, if you used, use uh, a domesticated yeast, it's not a problem. Because on the other side, I will use a spontaneous, a wild one, so with much more biodiversity. Now we know that this domestication has an influence on the environment. So when I make an analysis of the microbes in the air, in some areas, I will see that a lot of microbes are domesticated, but are now in our environment. So we are changing the uh, biodiversity, like making a field. You don't have any more forest. Deforestation in uh, Brazil or in, in other countries 
is something terrible because we can see it with our eyes. We can see from the plan that there is no trees. But the same happens with domestication because in the moment of you take out the forest, you put other plants. And so the forest cannot regenerate. If you take, uh, put a lot of microbes in the environment, you will destroy a lot of biodiversity. And this, is, this affects uh, a cheese or a wine producer. I, I talked about a wine producer I know that was analyzing his wine with a wild fermentation. He, he discovered that the only yeast that was working was uh, domesticated ones that his neighbors were using in a huge mass. And this is uh, dramatic because he wanted to make a wine with other microbes. So you had to go to the mountain to find a clean air where the domesticated microbes were not present. Wow. It's a big job for something that should be very easy. Uh, but the problem is far more important than for a cheese producer or a wine because it affects also the plants that become sick, the people who become sick because we have microbes everywhere. And if we reduce this biodiversity, the, the illness will come. And we see it. We have illnesses in, uh, in the last century that there was no uh, mention of those in the thousands of years before. Because we changed our lifestyle and the lifestyle is also something that affects our surrounding. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought before about you know, you hear about the benefits of fermented foods, but not all fermented foods are created equal, you might say. Um, there's been a lot of growing interest and excitement among people to eat more fermented foods, but also to try and make them themselves. Mm -hmm. You host workshops, and I'm curious how you feel like the pandemic specifically raised awareness among people who are interested in making their own bread, kombucha, what have you and how you responded to that desire. Yeah, somehow there was a, a raiseness of interest uh, because people were enclosed in, uh, in their houses, mm -hmm. so they had to think about things and to think about health, healthiness. But on the other side, the pity is that many of these people are looking at the internet. So looking at a video tutorial for making something practical is often not the best way. Because you have to smell, you have to touch something to understand how practical you can do it. And uh, in this sense, it would be better to read a book, not to watch a video, in my mind. So, But uh, now that the pandemic is quite finished, <laughs> there, there are a um, good number of uh, classes held on presence uh, that are growing more and more. And the interest is more a bit deeper. People were, were a, a bit more superficial uh, before the pandemic. But in the balance, I don't know who, who wins. <laughs> and you, you refused to do like Zoom classes, online classes during the pandemic. Is that right? You insisted on doing, yeah. um, waiting yeah. for the in-person to return. Yes, of course, because it's like uh, you cannot uh, feel the tasting without tasting. So uh, online, you cannot know how it tastes. And what kind of feedback do you hear from people once they gain these skills, once they can take this back to their everyday life? I mean, 
How do people how do people feel? What do they tell you about how maybe it changes the food they eat or the way they cook or how they think about it? There are three different uh, good things they feel. The first is making food by themselves. So I, I make what I eat and that is fantastic sensation. The other is that um, they become something like addicted to this uh, experience <laughs> of producing their own fermentation, of seeing how it develops, how to see how every time it's a bit different. It's not the same result. And the third is that indeed they eat better and they feel better. Some more and some not so, so much. But it's like uh, you, you become like uh, very, very interested in this because you are doing it. So it's like a hobby, a nice thing you do, an interesting to, to do. It's like a sport. And speaking of resources, you translated a very famous one, Wild Fermentation by Sandra Katz into Italian. I'd love to hear just what that was like for you and how you feel it contributes to Italian literature on fermentation. Well, it was the, the reason why I tr translated this book because I was holding classes, a lot of classes, and every time people said, uh, which book you suggest? And I always said, wild fermentation, but it's only in English. I mean, it's in many languages, but in Italian there was no tra translation. So I started to translate it because I, uh, I was needing a, bo an Ita a book in Italian that was very good. And for me, this was the best book for introducing fermentation. When I started uh, traducing it, uh, translating it, it was uh, very nice because I have read the book uh, before. But to translate means uh, to put much more attention and so I came deep in the thinking, in the talking of uh, Sandor in his book. And so I understood much more what was behind his way of uh, ex explaining things very easily, very in a light way. You can read it very fast, very, very easily. But there is a thinking behind that is very deep. And I uh, understood this only traducing it and uh, translating it and it was like uh, a long work for me because I had other things to do so I had just spare time to do it but it was very very fascinating so you're I mean you speak incredible English obviously but you're not a professional translator you really did this because of your love of of what the book was about Yes, I, I used to be a, a professional translator, but oh, okay. from German to Italian. So okay. English is not my language. So I could do that only because I knew about fermentation. Okay. It was like, aha, uh -huh, he's saying that, he's writing that. It's not good. My English is not so good, but I understood what he was talking about. And was, this is the most important thing when you translate, to know the matter and yeah. not just to know the language. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up here today? I would say for me, food should be cultural. I do fermentation not only because I like fermentation. I don't sell uh, fermented products because I want to sell. It's about making culture, raise a consciousness about food. Not in a, a generical term, but a very conscious of consciousness of what I am eating right now for everyone. So I invite everyone to uh, go to know the farmer who produces the carrot you eat, go to see who's the cook that is cooking and cook yourself 
And so you can know more about the food because food is the relation we have with our surroundings, with our environment. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you everyone for listening. Listen to more of Heritage Radio Network on tours, coverage of Terra Madre and other food events around the globe, wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thank you to Slow Food and the Italian Trade Agency for hosting me here at Terra Madre. Heritage Radio Network on tour is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. HRN On Tour is powered by Simplecast. This episode of HRN On Tour was produced in part by generous funding from the Julia Child Foundation.